Governments, both state and federal, in the last year have announced big plans to get more renewable energy into the mix, as you know. When will those projects start to bring down the cost of electricity generation? When will the mix of those... We keep hearing that, that renewables is the cheaper form of, uh, cheapest form of energy, and yet clearly the, the Ukraine war is putting pressure on prices. When will we see a consequence? So we already see that. So if you look at December, January, February, when we've got high renewables output, particularly solar through the middle of the day and our wind outputs, we can have negative prices sometimes in the spot market. So we are seeing that positive impact from renewables investment. Hello and welcome to the Baseload podcast. My name is Ben Beattie. We just heard from Claire Savage, chair of the Australian Energy Regulator, explaining why renewables are lowering costs in direct contradiction to the reason she's on the show, which is to explain why the Australian Energy Regulator is about to raise the retail price cap, also known in confusing doublespeak as the default market offer. The gratuitous sheep leading sound effects indicates Miss Savage has provided some misleading information. Between the federal and state governments, tens of billions of taxpayer dollars are being thrown at renewables and new transmission lines and these costs have not yet been factored into the AER's deliberations on the retail price cap. We'll hear more from Miss Savage and the Sheep later in the show. We'll touch on Daniel Andrews and his misinformation to the public about gas extraction in Victoria and, and what he's planning to do about it. Robert Godleibson had a, a very strong, a very good article in The Australian in March. Uh, we'll dig through that a little bit. And finally, this episode will wrap up with the full audio from the recent nuclear power debate in the Australian Senate on the 22nd of March, 2023. But first, Ben Fordham on 2GB Radio takes us through the changes in the power prices. Well, we've got a bit of news, and this is worse than we expected. Electricity prices are set to jump by almost a quarter. We're bracing for official increases of up to 25% from July 1. The draft default market offer, which is the price cap on what retailers charge their existing customers, has just been released. And if you're a standard family customer, the increase will be between 19% and 24%. So they were talking about 20%. It's a lot higher than that if you're hitting 24 or 25. Small businesses, 25% more. So there you go. Price increases again. What's left unsaid, though, is that if a small business is coming off contract and gets relegated to a default market offer, whereas previously they've been on a better deal, effective increase in prices for that company might be double. They might go from, say, 20 cents a kilowatt hour total to more like 40 cents a kilowatt hour. And that's not something that small businesses can handle. Let's get back to the Claire Savage's interview on ABC Radio. The head of the Australian Energy Regulator, Claire Savage, is in the studio with me. Claire, welcome. Morning, Patricia. First of all, how much of a hike are we talking about and when is it going to hit? So what we're releasing today is our draft decision. So the final decision won't be available until May. At this time, we're estimating that household prices could rise between 20 and 22%, depending on where you live. (coughs) The studio goat's bleated, indicating we need to butt in. The default market offer for Energex in the region I live last year increased by $165 if you did not have hot water, it increased by $220 if you did have hot water, and for a small business, it increased by over $700, and they are 11%, 12%, and 12% respectively. Now, it wouldn't be fair to continue without pointing out that in from 2020 through to 2022, where there were some slight decreases in the order of 3 to 5%. 
And these were largely because the Australian Energy Regulator, Miss Savage's organisation, clamped down on the money earned by transmission companies. Let's continue and see what else the GOAT picks up. Of course, the federal government intervened into the market at the end of the year. Of course, state and federal governments have intervened, especially at the end of last year. New South Wales implemented their coal reserve and the coal price cap, and the federal government intervened with their gas price cap. So we have seen unprecedented volatility in our wholesale electricity markets over the last couple of years. We've had very high coal and gas prices as a result of the war in Ukraine and the um, recovery from the pandemic. While it's true the international boycotts of Russian coal and gas have pushed up international prices in those commodities, it's largely untrue to say that export coal is burnt in Australian power stations. Okay, but it's still an increase, so it's not as bad as it could have been, but still for consumers, obviously, uh, no one's going to be looking forward to a a bill which is higher. Look, this is an incredibly difficult decision, and we know this is difficult news for customers who are facing cost of living pressures. Nobody wants to put up prices at all. Nobody wants to put up prices? I'd suggest that the power stations are quite happy with the situation, and possibly their shareholders, what's left of them. Recall Brookfield is in the process of buying Origin, one of Australia's largest generator and retail companies. Why would they want to do that? Unless they think they're going to get a very fast or very high return on their investment. And where do the returns on investment come from in a generator and retail electricity company? That profit comes from the consumers who buy the electricity. Uh, So 20 to 22% is still a significant increase, but it is much, much lower than it would have otherwise been. The major reason electricity prices are lower than the AER predicted, you know, a few short months ago at somewhere around 40 to 50%, is because international gas prices have dropped due to an easing of the winter conditions in Europe. US domestic gas prices are somewhere around the $5 Australian a gigajoule. And Germany has largely filled their storage, which is well above long-term average quantities. Uh, And with easing winter conditions, the demand drops off. Therefore, the price drops. And because the wholesale price in Australia is largely set by gas-fired power stations and hydro, and renewables don't have a say in it, lower gas prices means lower wholesale electricity prices. The default market offer isn't meant to be the cheapest rate out there, quite the opposite. It's meant to be the maximum price that retailers can charge on default contracts. So why is a rise of this... Uh, this much necessary? So what we try and do is balance uh, the needs of consumers, protect them from unjustifiably high prices, make sure retailers can't charge them more than they should. The current round of price hikes are explained as largely to recoup costs incurred during the June 2022 energy crisis when retailers were forced to buy very expensive wholesale electricity uh, and there's a retail price cap, so the, the arbitrage there went in the wrong direction. So this time they're, they're pushing the prices up to recover that money. Who's to say how much electricity should cost? Bureaucrats? Um, but we also need to ensure that retailers can recover their costs uh, and make a margin and compete and innovate. This is a bureaucracy that, remember, sets the a transmission company's rate of return and also now sets the default market offer, which is the retail company's basically rate of return. In a market where... The government has now capped gas and coal prices. What kind of uh, innovation are we expecting to see in this environment? Last time we talked, you told me about the distress that people are expressing to you about uh, energy prices. Uh, Do you expect that that will 
intensify now that prices are going up again? I think any price increase makes it harder for customers, particularly when they're already facing interest rate hikes and, and other uh, you know issues with cost of living. So what we are seeing is we've got a lot of pressure on retailers through our work at the Australian Energy Regulator to make sure they are looking out for vulnerable customers. We have seen in recent months increased numbers of customers being offered uh, hardship programs and earlier, so when they've got lower levels of debt, we are seeing more customers completing these programs and so retailers are really stepping up in that space. But retailers are required to help customers who can't pay their bills. So if anyone is struggling to pay their bill or is worried that they might not be able to pay their bill, they should call their retailer and ask for help. There may be concessions and rebates that they're entitled to or they may be offered a hardship program so they may be, or a payment plan. <laughs> Now, I'm not going to sit here and say that uh, struggling electricity customers shouldn't be offered assistance. What we're seeing here is some of the burden of these poor policies, which are increasing energy prices, is being shifted onto the retailers themselves. This burden that falls on the retailers to carry unpaid bills of their customers is a cost. It's delayed income. And this contributes to this environment that these companies are operating in. So, added costs, difficult. You know, changing terms of payment, more customers unable to pay their bills. This environment is going to push smaller retailers out and leave us in the hands of the giant conglomerates, the AGLs and the uh, formerly Origin, now Brookfield. These are companies that can afford to wear those short-term costs or the extra more difficult operating conditions, and they're just going to get that money back. There's no reform policy going on here. It's just intervention, band-aid after band-aid. Only about 10% of eligible households are actually on the default market offer, but experts say retailers use it as a kind of reference point to set their other offers. Will electricity consumers across the board see price hikes as a result of this higher DMO? So the default market offer is what we call the reference price. So retailers have to advertise against that. And so we do tend to see that when the default market offer rises, other offers in the market also rise because they're responding to the same sort of cost pressures that we've been analysing. But they should still be offering prices in the market that are lower than the default market offer. So it still makes sense to shop around. So yes, price rises across the board. Governments, both state and federal in the last year, have announced big plans to get more renewable energy into the mix, as you know. When will those projects start to bring down the cost of electricity generation? When will the mix of those, we keep hearing that, that renewables is the cheaper form of, uh, cheapest form of energy, and yet clearly the, the Ukraine war is putting pressure on prices. When will we see a consequence? Well, you won't, Patricia, because renewables do not lower retail electricity prices, as I've explained several times before. So we already see that. So if you look at December, January, February, when we've got high renewables output, particularly solar through the middle of the day and our wind outputs, we can have negative prices sometimes in the spot market. I'm not sure how many times I have to say it uh, or how, ma how many times these bureaucrats have to be told, but wholesale prices are not retail prices. And by the way, in what part of the, in what part of the same world do negative wholesale prices indicate a, a good outcome? We are seeing that positive impact from renewables investment. <laughs> that was a squeaky one. Uh, I'm not sure there's any positive impact from renewables investment. Uh, Claire Savage is on the show explaining how electricity prices are just going up. What we also need investment in, though, is dispatchable forms of capacities. Uh, of course. More investment, that'll push the prices down. That we need to replace our ageing coal-fired power stations and we need new gas-fired generation, pumped hydro, storage, batteries and we also need lots of transmission investment to spread it all around, to transport it around the country. 
to me, that sounds more like a message from the renewables lobby than from the chief bureaucrat of our energy regulatory agency. You mentioned this is a draft. Um, it's not the final. You'll make your final determination at the end of May. Can you just explain that? Could we see a bigger hike? Like what changes between now and May? So one of the things we're doing is consulting. So we'll be looking for feedback from stakeholders, consumer groups, retailers, governments on on what they think about the decision, make sure we haven't made any mistakes, uh, get that feedback over the next couple of months. We also, though, keep monitoring the market. So we've got information up to today, but of course we're setting a price from 1 July. So we'll continue to collect information about the cost of the contracts for the next financial year and right up until we make our decision in May. So if we see big changes in that wholesale contract market between now and May, that could change the price. Hang on a minute. Price caps, coal reserves, lots and lots of renewables. Surely that's enough to keep the prices down. And we mentioned the intervention of the federal government at the end of last year that you say the prices would have been much higher if that hadn't happened. Will that Could that have a positive impact still in the next couple of months to even lower the price further? Well, we've already seen the market fall about 50% since those interventions in October, or started talking about interventions in October last year. Again, wholesale electricity price reductions have been caused by lower gas prices internationally. The prices seem to have stabilised in the last couple of months, so that's not to say they couldn't fall further. Except now there's price caps to refer to in coal and gas and the DMO has been raised up. Therefore, there's no incentive to lower prices. Uh, If we saw major plant outages or reliability concerns, they could also rise. So we just need to keep collecting that information until we make the decision in May. Ms Savage is referring to major plant outages and I believe she's implying coal. Well, if that's the case, what would you call on to fill the gap? Wind? Solar? What we also need investment in, though, is dispatchable forms of capacity. So we need to replace our ageing coal-fired power stations and we need new gas-fired generation, pumped hydro, storage, batteries, and we also need lots of transmission investment to spread it all around, to transport it around the country. I get angry about, you know, um, things that are unfair, things that don't work, people that are held back, cutbacks from Liberal governments that hurt ordinary families. I get angry about greedy energy companies who are gouging people with European gas prices. They're the things I get angry about, Josh. And then, what's more, I don't just get angry, I do something about it. That's what's most important. Labor is doing what matters. We always have and we always will. That clip was Daniel Andrews speaking some words from Sky News at the end of 2022. I chose that clip because it's difficult to find audio of Andrews speaking about gas. Andrews here says he's angry about, quote, greedy energy companies who are gouging people with European gas prices, end quote. Firstly, Australians don't pay European gas prices. We don't even export gas to Europe. Our LNG industry sent one and only one LNG cargo to the UK in 2022. The link between Australia's domestic gas prices and European gas prices is purely because Europe is trying to replace Russian gas and in 2022, massively increased gas imports from other countries. That sudden increase in demand meant European countries like Germany were happy to bid high prices in global spot markets to ensure they got the gas to prevent people freezing to death. This affected every gas user in the world, not just Australia. Now, with mild winter and historically full gas storages, Europe has since reduced their gas demand and global prices have retreated. Second, what is Andrews doing about securing gas supplies for Victorians? Absolutely nothing. He wants a domestic gas reserve installed, but that can only affect 
South Australia, Queensland or Western Australia, none of which have a pipeline with the capacities to supply the gas that will replace the depleted Bass Strait gas fields and keep Longford operational. And even if total demand for gas is flat or reducing slightly over time, the peak demand for gas remains high. This occurs during the southern state winters, when people with natural gas piped to their homes need to run heaters and electricity demand spikes, requiring gas-fired generation. These high demand periods remain dependent on gas, and will do so long after Victorian gas fields are depleted. So without new gas development in Victoria, gas prices will surge, and they will soon be paying even more for gas. This is why there are plans for LNG import terminals in both New South Wales and Victoria. Robert Gottliebson in the Australian newspaper on the 23rd of March 2023 calls out Daniel Andrews for his misinformation on gas. The article is titled, Andrews's gas ignorance misleads the nation, drives power prices higher. In an attack on Federal Resources Minister Madeleine King, Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews has been caught misleading the nation and the state of Victoria. Queensland will be delighted. Irrespective of your views of the Victorian Premier, he is a brilliant politician who rarely makes such a mistake, especially in dealing with Canberra. He may have been misled by his own energy minister. The contrast between what the Premier said and the facts is stunning. Well, with the greatest respect to Minister King, I direct her to the lead scientist who makes it very clear that there are no known or probable onshore reserves that can be conventionally extracted, Mr Andrews said. And the facts are that Daniel Andrews is absolutely correct about the conclusions of the committee, headed by the lead scientist. But the high-cost committee was ordered not to look at areas where Victoria has vast reserves of deep gas because their development at the time was banned. The government's strict don't-look instruction also covered the reserves of Lakes Oil and Gippsland and gas in the Otways near the South Australian border. The committee dutifully obeyed the government instructions, thus making its conclusion a nonsense. And then, what's more, I don't just get angry, I do something about it. That's what's most important. Labor is doing what matters. We always have, and we always will. Victoria has lots of gas, and it's also relatively easy to extract. Uh, the difference between... Victorian gas and Queensland gas is there's no great artesian basin sitting in the way. In Queensland, the LNG industry is fed by coal seam gas. The coal seam lives, you know, 700 metres to 1,500 metres underground, whereas the in, in coal seam pockets, the water that comes out of those is nothing to do with the great artesian basin. You can't use that water unless you treat it, which the, the gas companies do. They have big water treatment plants, reverse osmosis to clean the water up, and that becomes, you know, basically rainwater. The gas wells that are drilled through from the surface into the, uh, the coal gas pockets go through the Great Artesian Basin, double or triple line concrete and steel things, about a, about a foot across, about a foot in diameter. They bear little risk to the Great Artesian Basin. I mean, even if every single well leaked, the amount of water that would come into the Great Artesian Basin, I, I doubt you could measure a change in the salinity at all. God leaps and continues. The truth is in the publicly available government records and shows that the vast reserves in the Gippsland area have actually been calculated by world-renowned US gas and oil reserve estimator MHA Petroleum Consultants, now part of the giant Sproul Group. Victoria's gas reserve not only exists, but have been measured by the most qualified people in the world. So if one us to frack the place, ah, uh, no, that's not happening. That is not happening and we couldn't have been clearer, Mr Andrews said. The facts are that Victoria's vast onshore Gippsland gas reserves do not require fracking. The low-cost Gippsland gas is rare in the world. It is dissolved in incredibly pure water that would transform the water outlook of the dry parts of the region, grow plants and trees that absorb carbon and protect higher rainfall parts of Gippsland from drought. I'll pause there. So again, 
the facts from Gottliebsen are talking about the useful qualities of the water that is extracted, which releases the gas. Gottliebsen continues. And the gas is so deep, between 500 metres and 1,200 metres, that the water and its gas could be extracted without posing any danger to the Gippsland underground rivers called aquifers, which are used by farmers. Pausing for a second, this is a similar situation to the Queensland coal seam gas industry, where the, the gas and the water is extracted from well below, hundreds of metres below the freshwater aquifers that the farmers do rely on uh, in a lot of cases for their irrigation. And in fact, the coal seam gas water, once treated, is perfect for irrigation and is often given away free to the farmers. Back to the Gottliebsen article. The gas existence is not in doubt, but it does require about six holes to double test the early world's conclusions that the gas will flow easily to the surface. And he quotes Daniel Andrews here. We export 70% of our gas and it's not fair for me to give advice to Minister King. But if I can, as politely as possible, perhaps suggest to her that a national domestic gas reserve would be what we need so that our gases for our businesses and our households and the rest of it, the bit we don't need, sell that to the world and get the best price you can, Mr Andrews said. But we shouldn't have to compete against the rest of the world for something that comes out of our ground and our seabed. And I reckon a national minister would be really well placed to do that. I'd do it here if I could, but there's a thing called the constitution and I'm not able to do that. End of quote for Daniel Andrews. Gottlieb's and goes on, the facts are that Victoria exports gas to New South Wales. Victorian gas reserves rival Queensland and are much cheaper to extract. Why on earth would Australia have a national gas reserve to help the state that for political reasons will not develop its, its gas into a fantastic low-cost adjunct to its solar and wind developments? I'll wrap up the Gottlieb's article there because he's got to the crux of the matter. A domestic gas reserve is not going to get the gas from Queensland or South Australia or Western Australia into Victorian households during winter. It's not going to get the gas from Queensland and South Australia and Western Australia into Victorian gas-fired turbines during peak summer demand and winter demand. The pipeline capacity does not exist. A domestic reserve cannot work for Victoria. They need to develop their own gas. What's actually going to happen is they won't develop their own gas. <laughs> you can see this plan out and they're going to pay more for it. And then there's going to be ever more squealing by the politicians. And the end result will be that gas dependent consumers and businesses will leave. They'll go where the gas is cheaper. I get angry about, you know, um, things that are unfair, things that don't work, people that are held back, cutbacks from Liberal governments that hurt ordinary families. I get angry about greedy energy companies who are gouging people with European gas prices. They're the things I get angry about, Josh. And then, what's more, I don't just get angry, I do something about it. That's what's most important. Labor is doing what matters. We always have and we always will. The Minister for Climate Change and Energy has laid out the government's energy and emissions reduction plan and has clearly articulated, very clearly articulated, that nuclear will not be part of Australia's energy mix. That opening clip was Senator Karen Grogan, South Australian Senator for the Labor Party. And I'll read you her splash screen on her webpage. It's an honour to represent South Australians in the Senate. As a new member of federal parliament, I'm determined to make a difference and contribute to building a fairer society. I've spent my career working for fairness in the community and social services sectors, in public policy, in environmental advocacy and in the trade union movement. Now, 
I'm a proud member of Anthony Albanese's Labor team and I'm working hard to ensure that South Australia's voice is heard. Please get in touch if, it, if you would like to share your ideas or find out more. And thank you for the honour of representing you in Canberra, Karen Grogan, Labor Senator for South Australia. Okay, now I'll read a little bit from Karen Grogan's Wikipedia page. Karen Grogan is an Australian politician. She was appointed as a Senator for South Australia on 21st of September 2021 to fill a casual vacancy caused by the death of Alex Gallagher. Grogan was born to Irish parents in London, England. Her father, Larry Grogan, was a shop steward with the Transport and General Workers Union. She moved to Australia in 1990 and became an Australian citizen four years later. Grogan was previously CEO of the South Australian Council of Social Services until 2009, when she worked as a Chief of Staff to the Federal MP for Hindmarsh, Mark Butler. In 2019, she joined the United Voice Trade Union as a Senior Political Officer. Shortly afterwards, United Voice merged with the National Union of Workers to form the United Workers Union, and Grogan successfully succeeded David Gray as convener of the PLUS, Progressive Left Unions and Sub-Branches Faction. Plenty of experience in the power and energy sector there from Ms. Grogan. She was speaking in Parliament House on the 22nd of March 2023. This was described as a nuclear power debate in the Australian Senate. Senator Babette from South Australia had raised the, the discussion. In this, in this podcast episode, of, I've downloaded the whole episode uh, of that Senate, trimmed out this nuclear power debate, and I'll present it all here. Several speakers opposed repealing the nuclear power ban. Pay close attention to how the, often the CSIRO is quoted, as well as nuclear waste, nuclear weapons, Chernobyl and Fukushima. These are terrible arguments, and we'll take a closer look in future episodes. The debate kicks off with Senator Babette from Victoria. Thank you. Now, Australia, we are facing an energy crisis, an energy crisis that threatens to cripple industry, impoverish families, and if it is not urgently addressed, we will see, we will see our standard of living decrease and we will see our people suffer. The fact that we find ourselves in this position beggars belief. As a nation, we have a clear competitive advantage abundant and easily accessible coal and gas. I keep talking about it. We should have the cheapest energy in the world, but we don't. Instead, we have manufacturers and businesses closing and collapsing all across our nation under the weight of energy bills. In fact, the cost of electricity is going to rise by about 30 per cent this year in my home state of Victoria. Now, the Smithfield Sorry, the snack brands factory in Smithfield reported some months ago that their gas bill had gone from $3 million a year to $9 million a year. And you know where that factory is located? In Energy Minister Chris Bowen's electorate. Who needs enemies when you've got mates like Minister Bowen as your local member? Don't need enemies. Now, our current energy crisis is not the fault of some far-off, distant war like some in this place have tried to allege on more than one occasion. Perhaps if that was the case, it would be easier to understand. Instead, our crisis is self-inflicted, and the hurt that we are currently experiencing can easily be avoided. The Albanese government and the Greens are determined to shut down all coal and gas. The government, of course—well, I hope anyway— of course, hopes to do this without destroying business, impoverishing families and endangering our national security. This is a pipe dream. This 
is a pie-in-the-sky plan. It is simply not possible to achieve net zero using solar panels, wind farms and batteries, not while at the same time maintaining our standard of living. If the government is determined to put an end to safe, effective, cheap, reliable and abundant coal and gas and maintain our nation, then the government must embrace nuclear energy. We have no other option. If we do not, we will suffer exactly the same as some other nations across the world are suffering right now. If the government is determined that Australians must not use our abundant coal and gas, then let's use our abundant uranium instead. But here's the irony. Just like we're exporting our coal and gas, we're also exporting our uranium to other countries where they are using it. They are benefiting, it, benefiting from it and we're not. We are the third largest exporter of uranium in the world. And that's just crazy that we're not taking advantage of it. Now, for those who say they are worried that catastrophic climate change is about to end the earth because of CO2, which is just plant food, well, nuclear power, there's your answer. What about the expense? Well, yes, it might cost a little bit up front, but it's an investment which secures our power needs for the long term. Renewables, however, are not renewable at all. The only thing renewable about renewables is the expense. Every 15 or so years, roughly, you've got to bury your solar panels in the ground, in landfill, buy new ones. Every 10 years, you bury the batteries, buy new ones. Every 20 years, you bury the wind turbines, you buy new ones. Where do you buy them from? Mostly China. The CCP controls most of the supply chain when it comes to renewables. Nuclear, when, com when compared to that possible future, is in fact not expensive. It is better for our environment, especially when you, can, when you can compare the cost of this against rebuilding our national infrastructure to accommodate renewables. With nuclear, you can build a plant in the existing footprint where the coal-powered fire plant is right now, and you can keep the infrastructure as it is. No changes. How good is that? Now, instead of acres of solar panels and hillsides dotted with wind turbines, we can have a facility roughly the size of an IKEA powering millions of homes. We need to stop cowering in fear at the thought of the word nuclear energy. Nuclear energy is the answer for the 21st century. There is no option. If we do not look at nuclear energy, our only other alternative is poverty. Thank you. Senator Canavan, you have the call. Thank you, uh, Madam Deputy President. Well, I'm uh, honoured to, to stand and support uh, uh, this matter of public importance and congratulate Senator Babette for bringing it forward. Uh, the acquisition of uh, five nuclear uh, or up to five nuclear submarines has removed any logical reason for Australia to continue to ban uh, nuclear energy in this country. Sometimes we hear uh, that we, we can't go down the path of nuclear energy because we have nowhere to store the waste. Well, we are going to now have a high-level waste facility because of the acquisition of nuclear submarines. That, will, that hurdle will have already been jumped. That is done. We sometimes hear uh, that it, it could potentially be too unsafe and there could be some sort of accident or issue. Well, we're going to have up to five nuclear reactors sailing around our coastline 
uh, uh, underwater, just next to major population centres, docked in our harbours. Uh, no safety concerns about that. It would be completely illogical to legalise the sailing of nuclear submarines right around our coastline while we continue to having those same facilities onshore and on land in this country. Because we do have a massive energy deficit right now, our energy regulators are warning that we are 8,000 megawatts short of reliable power over the next decade. And that can't be filled by solar and wind. That is of dispatchable capacity that we need. Now, these nuclear subs, maybe we could have an innovative solution. We could dock them in Sydney Harbour, you go get a big extension cord from Bunnings, and, and that's 1,000 megawatts of that 8,000 could, could come in uh, into and provide electricity. But a more logical option would be actually to build an advanced uh, nuclear reactor in this country, as, as happens in every settled continent in this world except for Australia. It is us and the penguins now who don't have nuclear energy in the world. Every other continent, every other settled continent, settled continent in the world relies on nuclear energy. It has done for decades safely. It is about time now we get over this ridiculous uh, paranoia uh, and legalise nuclear energy so Australians can get cheaper power. Thank you, Senator. Senator Roberts. Thank you. As a servant to the many amazing people who make up our one Queensland community, I note that nuclear is the answer to humanity's energy needs. The only question is whether we embrace nuclear technology now and set Australians up for a prosperous future, or we keep promoting unreliable, expensive wind and solar that will end as landfill every 12 to 15 years. Australia can never achieve a sustainable energy grid if every new wind and solar power unit we build dies so quickly. The energy required to break down a solar panel dwarfs its profit. Even the ABC admits that solar panel waste will outstrip all other e-waste by 2035. Nuclear energy is a single build project with a small ongoing fuel supply whose waste output is tiny, completely contained and capable of being used as fuel for reactors. In other words, truly renewable and, and zero output of carbon dioxide. Not that carbon dioxide is a problem, it's, a, it's a plant, food, plant food. It's a proudly Australian-centric energy system that doesn't require dependence on long supply lines from communist China. Nuclear will keep the lights on in Australia independent of the weather. The European Union has embraced nuclear as the gold standard in green technology. They've tried solar panels, they've tried wind turbines. They don't work! So why are parties in this place insisting on subjecting everyday Australians to electricity cost and reliability nightmares? Why are you ignoring the science? A one gigawatt nuclear plant is equivalent to 430 wind turbines or three million solar panels demolished and replaced six times in the life of one new generation nuclear plant with a life of 100 years. This is why the United Nations and World Economic Forum's crooks and disciples are trying to make nuclear a dirty word because they know they can't compete on any environmental or economic argument. Nuclear energy is freedom. Nuclear energy is national security. Nuclear energy is the answer to maintaining everyday Australians' living standards. I thank Senator Bivet for, for the motion. Senator, your time has expired. Senator Grogan. Thank you. Uh, the Minister for Climate Change and Energy has laid out the government's energy and emissions reduction plan and has clearly articulated, very clearly articulated, that nuclear will not be part of Australia's energy mix. Nuclear is the most expensive form of energy. So there's a good reason, right? It is the most expensive form of energy which has been reaffirmed over and over again by various people. The CSIRO, in their 2021-22 GenCOS report, the report calls nuclear energy 
commercially immature and high cost. The report um, also affirms that the cheapest form of energy are mixed renewables, such as wind and solar. So I would be delighted to introduce Senator Babette to, uh, to some scientists, maybe some economists, um, and that might help inform him in terms of his pathway on pushing for nuclear energy. Senator Babette's friends on the opposition benches They've been unsuccessful in prosecuting this nuclear argument in nine years under their own government. They can't get their own people to support it. Their own people won't back it. So I'm not quite sure where that's going for those in the opposition. The Senators, uh, I remind you that uh, other speakers have been heard in silence, so I remind people to give the same courtesy to Senator Grogan. So nine years of a Liberal National Government, during which we had 22 stop-start energy policies and three gigawatts of dispatchable energy exit the grid without being replaced, I hardly think that those opposite are in a position to be providing uh, a way forward on our energy issue. And then, of course, when we introduced our energy price relief package, you wouldn't support it. A package to reduce the effect on people's hip pocket, to take down the prices. We've seen prices skyrocket and they started under the opposition government. And in our attempts to bring it down, you guys all vote against it. Because you would Senators, rather, you would rather you. invest in very, very expensive nuclear energy. Yeah, I'd love a medal. Thank you, Senator Canavan. If you could just make me one, that'd be great. Senator Grogan, I fear Senator that the facts Grogan, on nuclear energy Senator generation. Grogan, I remind you and Senator Canavan that uh, it is disorderly to interject, and your comments should go through the chair. Pay the same courtesy was, was displayed to you, Senator Canavan. My apologies, but I do fear that the facts on nuclear energy generation are somewhat lost on my colleagues across the room. The reports, I know um, there are a number of you who have cast aspersions on the CSIRO in the past, and so rather than just to keep quoting them, I will add a bit more um, detail from other sources that you may prefer. So particularly the nuclear energy industry, yeah, that's right, the nuclear energy industry admits that, it, that cost is a prohibitive factor compared to renewable energy. The World Nuclear Industry Status Report in 2020, not the CSIRO, if you're paying attention, but the World Nuclear Industry Status Report stated, and I'll quote it to you, the cost of renewables continue to fall due to incremental manufacturing and installation improvements, while nuclear, despite over half a century of industrial experience, continues to see costs rising. Now, that same report goes on to say that the levelised cost of energy analysis by the US bank Lazard shows that between 2009 and 2021, utility-scale solar costs came down 90 per cent, wind came down 72 per cent, and new nuclear costs increased by 36 per cent. 
So, sure, I get it that maybe you don't like some scientists, you don't like some organisations because you think they believe in climate change or various other things that you can't get behind. But this is the industry itself. This is the report on the industry, the industry itself, telling you exactly what the costs look like. So you enjoy that at your peril and ignore it at the countries, I believe. We have now seen a decade of denial and delay as far as our energy sector is concerned. And now the transition to renewable energy is going to have to boost. We know this. The level of investment has been low, but it is growing. Since we legislated the 43% target, investment has increased, and it will continue to increase Thank you, for Senator, renewable your energy. Your time has expired. Senator B. Pocock. Thank you, Acting Deputy President. The proposal for nuclear power for Australia is wrong on many counts. Small modular nuclear power, reaction, uh, power generation is too expensive. It's not operating commercially. It's a distraction from what we have to really get on with, which is a very fast move to renewables. We senators in this place have a responsibility to consider realistic proposals to advance citizens' interests, not run impractical, risky, uncommercial proposals up the flagpole on behalf of, in this case, nuclear industry spruikers. Last time I looked, only two small modular reactors were in operation on the planet, one in China, one in Russia, and in both cases the cost blowouts have been huge. Many other such next-generation nuclear reactors have been cancelled as people have worked out that renewables are the cheaper, reliable way forward. But I want to especially focus on what Minister Canavan, Mr. Canavan, Senator Canavan has raised, and that's the question of nuclear waste disposal. The truth is that finding a permanent solution for the safe storage of nuclear waste arising from power generation remains a big, dangerous problem everywhere, a very expensive problem. The UK has 70 years of waste, 260,000 tonnes of it, from its nuclear power plants in unsafe temporary storage. It's a major problem for that country and its citizens. And the US nuclear industry has been plagued, similarly, by dangerous leaks and failures. No long-term solution exists in the US, not for waste from power generation or from nuclear-powered submarines. South Australians have had some experience with these issues. In 2016, our citizens had a very close look at a proposal that we take the world's nuclear power waste and store it. We were promised an income stream of $51 billion. That's a lot of money, but South Australians said no. The world's largest citizens' jury of 350 South Australian citizens read the fine print. They saw the proposal was for temporary storage for above ground for more than a century. They said no to the false promise of huge incomes, but especially to the safety risks and the fact that those who spruik nuclear power never offer a long-term waste solution that is safe and that will last the 100,000 years that it's needed. And First Nations people across South Australia in particular said no. They remember Maralinga. So this is a national challenge of long standing. Since Australia first started producing nuclear waste 70 years ago, five successive governments have tried and failed to find a suitable place for permanent storage of our relatively small quantities of low level and intermediate level waste. Low waste arising from medical uses must be stored safely for 300 years, and it's nowhere near as dangerous as intermediate waste. But no community in this country has agreed to take and store that waste. 
Intermediate level waste arising from research at Lucas Heights must be safely stored for 10,000 years. The previous government began a process towards that storage at Kimber, and it's been bitterly disputed at every step of the way since, opposed by farmers, by community members, by First Nations people, the Bungala people, who are currently in the federal court fighting the current government, which is spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to, to, um, uh, to oppose the voice of the Bungala people. In the case of AUKUS, the fuel from decommissioned submarines is nuclear weapons grade and it requires military scale security and must be stored not safely not for 300 years, not for 10,000, but for 100,000 years. And neither the UK or the US have been able to find permanent storage solutions for their own submarine waste. So given that successive governments have continuously failed to manage much less dangerous radioactive waste in Australia, a government would find it very difficult in this country to find a solution to dispose of nuclear waste or AUKUS submarine waste. And traditional owners of the future in particular should have a say and a veto about any such proposal. So a long list of reasons why the $368 billion spend proposed for AUKUS is a terrible idea, but it's not least because the government has no viable solution to, to, to care for the weapons-grade nuclear waste and keep us safe. The Australian public is right to be sceptical and concerned about waste disposable in relation to AUKUS. There is no plan, and the same argument applies to any ill-considered expensive adventurism around nuclear power. Our children need practical, affordable action on renewable energy that cuts carbon pollution, not pies in the sky that generate toxic waste for which there are no safe solutions. Thank you, Senator Pocock. Senator Van. Thank you, Acting Deputy President. 1,430 terawatt hours per year is the amount of electricity needed to be able to power Australia to be a green energy superpower, something that we all aspire for this country to be. That is an awful lot of energy. If we are going to power that through green energy, we have to consider all options to do so, nuclear power being exactly one of those. There is no way that we can get to net zero emissions, or even better, zero emissions, without nuclear baseload power. So all clean energy options need to be on the table. So that includes nuclear, pumped hydro, geothermal, all sorts of other ways. This fixation on renewables only is a fallacy that's being sold to the Australian public. And they're being lied to because there is no way that we can get to where we need to be and be a hydrogen superpower simply on renewables. The variable and intermittent nature of those generation techniques are not doable. Now, my learned friend over here talked about unproven technologies. And the other fallacy that uh, the Australian people are sold on is that batteries can solve this. There is no battery that can provide the deep storage of energy that will be needed to firm up intermittent power from wind and solar sufficiently enough to power in industries as they are now, let alone as we electrify industries to reduce emissions down to the lowest possible part we can. So stop telling lies. Nuclear power is a proven technology 
and it will play a part in our energy mix in the future. Thank you, Senator Van. Senator Green. Uh, thank you. I'm very happy to stand and speak on this um, matter of public importance today um, because it gives me an opportunity to talk about a number of matters, particularly our government's record on delivering on um, our renewable energy plan to make this country a renewable energy superpower. But it particularly gives me an opportunity to talk about two things. Um, the, the, the debate that we are having about nuclear energy in this place and why we are having that debate and who is pushing that debate in this chamber. Uh, because we know um, that there's a reason that the Liberal National Party is pushing nuclear as a, um, a form of energy, and it's because they're um, distracting from their bitter disunity and denialism on climate change and the fact that they don't want to see this country become a renewable energy superpower. Uh, I am proud that one of the first actions of our government was legislating our emissions reductions targets. Our government has a clear commitment to renewable energy. We know that firmed renewables are the cheapest form of energy and they are getting cheaper every single day. If we hadn't lost 10 years of investment, we would be far beyond where we are now, but we are making good headway in catching up. We are working with states and territories to deliver renewable energy projects across the country. It's why we're delivering our Powering Australia plan, but we're also choosing to invest in renewables through the National Reconstruction Fund, an incredibly important piece of legislation that those opposite have dealt themselves out of. We want to see our regions become renewable energy powerhouses, and I speak of the region that I come from in far north Queensland when I talk about um, the wind, solar and uh, pumped hydro opportunities that will create jobs in regional Queensland. But it's important to understand where we've come from over the past 10 years and why we are now having this debate, why we're, why we're at a point where we have a genuine discussion about renewable energy not being the way forward. And it's because the LNP's record on energy is abysmal. They vetoed in government, the Liberal National Party vetoed renewable energy projects that would have created hundreds of jobs in regional Queensland. In Queensland, the Liberal National Party tried to sell off the state's power assets so that we couldn't have public in, um, energy in public hands. Now, when it came to um, promising what um, power they would generate, they did um, promise years and years ago to build a coal-fired power station in North Queensland. That never happened because there is, no, um, there is nothing from this former government when it comes to delivering on the promises they made. Heading up into the election, they hid key information about electricity prices from Australia ahead of the election. And now in opposition, they choose to vote against energy bill relief in this chamber. They talk about reducing power prices, but they're not prepared to vote for cheaper power bills. We know what the experts say about nuclear energy. It's expensive, it is slow, it is the hardest to deliver when it comes to forms of power. Now, that isn't members on this side of the chamber saying that. That's the CSIRO. They've done these reports time and time again and found that nuclear energy would be far, far away the most expensive form of energy in Australia. That is the experts telling us the way forward when it comes to nuclear energy. We're facing an energy crisis right now in this country and in this world, and it is a matter of deep concern 
that a party of government is pushing a form of energy that would not have a plan that would take decades to establish. But why is the Liberal National Party talking about nuclear energy? Well, it's purely because, purely because they are completely disunified when it comes to their beliefs about climate change and renewable energy itself. They don't believe in renewable energy. They don't believe in climate change. They don't believe on doing anything about it. Now, the Liberal National Party can choose to generate a debate about nuclear energy, but they are using it as a distraction from the fact that they continue to drift further and further to the extreme far right on issues like this and others that we have seen play out in the national debate this week. But the Australian public know that the former government did nothing on energy. The proposal that they are putting forward around nuclear is uncosted, won't be delivered and won't deliver the jobs that regional Queenslanders deserve. And I urge this Thank chamber you, to Senator push Green. back on this debate. Thank you, Senator Green. Senator Thorpe. Thank you, Acting Deputy President. I cannot believe that we are actually here talking about nuclear power. Nuclear power makes no sense on so many fronts. It is a dangerous undertaking and can never be fully accident-free. As we have seen with Fukushima and Chernobyl, this is simply not a risk we can take for anybody living now or in the future. My people have known for many thousands of years that this poison, uranium, needs to stay in the ground and never be touched. It causes sickness and death. There is a lot of talk about next generation nuclear re reactors, but their concept, even if they were somehow magically safe, the technology does currently not exist to scale. So it is not even an option until some time in the future anyway. And even economists agree that nuclear is financially not, I repeat, not viable. Investment in nuclear energy would also slow the decarbonisation of our economy and would actually increase electricity costs, which you all are always so concerned about. Last but not least, we have absolutely no idea how to safely manage high-level nuclear waste for tens to hundreds of thousands of years. Nobody knows this, probably because it's actually not possible to make it safe for such a long time and communicate with generations in thousands of years. The, pro the proposition of nuclear energy is dangerous, dangerous eco economically, dangerous for our clean energy journey, dangerous for humanity. Thank you, Senator Thorpe. Senator O'Sullivan. Thank you, Acting Deputy President. In the last 30 years, nuclear energy has come a long way. The Greens like to remind us of the Chernobyl disaster, but the fact is nuclear technology has advanced tremendously since 1986. Nuclear energy in Australia has great potential to contribute to the global movement towards low emission technologies, and this is widely recognised by experts. Now, putting aside your personal views on the net zero debate, we're certainly not going to achieve it with only wind, turbines and solar panels. The entire world looks to us confused. They don't understand why we have a moratorium in place on nuclear energy. 
Uh, all we know is we're now working towards gaining nuclear submarine capabilities, so why not nuclear energy? In the United States, nuclear constitutes 20 per cent of the energy mix there, and there is bipartisan agreement in Congress about the importance of nuclear energy to help the US achieve its climate ambitions, its energy security and its sovereignty. President Joe Biden's Inflation Reduction Act has a heavy emphasis on the important role that it will play in the US. Now, I quote directly from the Office of Nuclear Energy's website, which says, Momentum is building for the US nuclear energy and the investment and tax incentives included in the IRA guarantee a commitment to nuclear energy that will continue well throughout the nation's journey to net zero. We must get our heads out of the sand and seriously look at lifting the moratorium. Now, I'm not even saying that we should necessarily build a nuclear power plant. We should just lift the moratorium. This way will allow industry to explore the opportunities and for universities, importantly, to commence the important work of skilling up our workforce that will be critical for any future nuclear industry here in Australia. We're still having the same discussion here today that we were having when I was born. And the rest of the world is, frankly, leaving us behind. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a week. In the meantime, if you like the podcast, hit the like button, subscribe, tell your friends.